If you've ever experienced a negative reaction to trauma exposure, you could be experiencing vicarious trauma, a phenomenon that can affect anyone who is continually exposed to victims of trauma or violence. Our guest today, Monica Urbanek, will help us identify vicarious trauma and how to remedy its impact. I'm Maria McMullen, and this is Genesis, the podcast. is a therapist, trainer, and consultant specializing in sexual assault and trauma who has worked with survivors of trauma for over 18 years. She has held several leadership positions, including an officer for the Dallas County Sexual Assault Coalition, a founding board member of the Dallas Area Rape Crisis Center, and a former president of the board of the Texas Association Against Sexual Assault. Ms. Urbanek is the recipient of multiple awards for her work in the field, including the Profiles and Leadership Award at the Southern Methodist University Women's Symposium, the Texas Association Against Sexual Assault, Vivian Miles Lifetime Achievement Award, and the National Sexual Assault Resource Center Visionary Voice Award. Monica holds a Master of Science degree from New Mexico State University and is a licensed marriage and family therapist and board-approved supervisor. Monica, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you. So happy to be here. So we're talking today about vicarious trauma, but before we tackle that topic, let's talk about the specific work that you do and get a working definition of trauma. You've been a therapist for about two decades now. Um, How has the work of a family therapist who works with survivors of sexual assault changed over that time period? Oh, gosh. Um, Let's see. I I think the whole landscape of trauma treatment has shifted over the 20 years that I've been doing this from in a variety of different ways. I think, you know, over the last few years, we've had a real bump in technology as a way for us to provide treatment and education and training in different ways, all the way down to the neurobiology of trauma informing the way that we do things differently now than when I started a long time ago to, you know, just the social cultural um, aspect of people even talking about trauma more, that this is actually something we even talk about, has been a big shift in the ability for me to be able to talk with clients and for them to have access to community towards healing. Yeah, you're spot on um, about the technology and people talking about trauma because it's everywhere. Uh, I guess, depending on what you follow in the media or even social media, um, I, I happen to follow a lot of things related to trauma and domestic violence and violence against women. And so um, it pops up everywhere I go. At every turn, I'm faced with mm-hmm. all kinds of solutions and people's ideas about what it means to experience trauma and how you can heal that. Um, and it's becoming kind of a buzzword, you know, and, and I think that, it, you know, because everyone's talking about it, and we talk about it all the time on this podcast. We talk about trauma a lot. It's very intertwined with domestic violence. Mm-hmm. And I want to be respectful of the concept and thereby the people who experience trauma. Because for people who experience abuse, domestic violence, coercive control, and many other things, trauma is real. 
and it can manifest differently in each of us. So understanding all of that, how do you define trauma? I think there are a variety of different ways that we culturally, socially, even in the work that I do as a clinician, um, define trauma. I'm so glad you're bringing this point up about sometimes the word trauma being overused. I think that um, culturally, while trauma as a concept has become more widely accepted, and like we said, we are talking about it more, sometimes that can dilute what actual trauma is. And so we have different um, measurements or definitions of trauma, but I really like to keep it pretty simple. Um, I think for me, my experience of my understanding of trauma is an exposure to an experience that overwhelms our own body's natural ability to re-regulate or cope. Over the years, like we were talking about just a second ago, we have learned to look at trauma differently. We see trauma now as a real nervous system response. And so the way I think of it is trauma is just our body being exposed to something that it doesn't, our nervous system doesn't have the natural ability to cope with and just bounce back like it would with everyday experiences that we have. So that can be a single incident. It might be something like a natural disaster that we experience. It might be like what we've been through for the last couple of years with a global pandemic. We've all experienced some mm -hmm. sort of trauma exposure through that. Um, it might also be a prolonged or cumulative effect. I'm thinking about um, BIPOC persons and um, suffering racial trauma and maybe even generational trauma. So it can be a single incident. It can be a lot of incidents. It can be cumulative. It can be generational. It can also be complex where we have a variety of all of those things contributing to system overwhelm in our nervous system and then the impacts of that. And it, and it would manifest a little differently in everyone, depending on our, um, the experience, whatever the experience was, whatever the incident mm -hmm. was that, that may have caused the, the trauma response. Absolutely. And as, as well as, you know, our own resilience and what we've been through in the past and, and generational uh, impact in our lives and so on and so forth. So I really appreciate your definition. And I love the way that you mentioned that in some cases it, the word itself is becoming diluted. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you, we have to really talk about what this is in the, in the framework of domestic violence and people who experience sexual assault, um, because that is very, very real uh, nervous system response to those traumatic incidents. And you work with survivors of trauma, but do you also work with family members or loved ones of those survivors who may experience a form of trauma from absolutely. their loved one's experience. Yeah, absolutely. And as we're talking about this idea of trauma and what it truly means in the context of how you and I are looking at it today, um, I do work with people who are family members, loved ones, um, exposed to the painful life experience that someone in their life has had to undergo. And we, as uh, in the mental health field, we've actually even expanded the definition of some of the diagnoses that are exposed, that are related to exposure to trauma, to include people who see the devastating effects of trauma on loved ones and other people. So maybe me not actually being the person who experienced the domestic violence, but seeing a family member or a loved one go through the terrible experience and seeing the devastating effects can actually cause trauma reactions in me, for example. So it's not, it's also the witnessing of the impact of trauma as well. 
Mm-hmm. So being in this work for such a long time, do you experience your own trauma from the experiences of your clients? Because you, you've worked with people who have had some pretty significant, um, you know, uh, sexual assaults or other mm-hmm. forms of abuse. Yeah. One of the things that I feel like is important for people to know who are in the helping profession is that being exposed to trauma has an impact on you. It can't not. Sitting with people and seeing them um, it be impacted by violence or um, some kind of mass disaster or any kind of um, painful life experience has to have an impact on you as a human. So I definitely have um, been impacted by the work that I do. And so I know we're going to talk about it a little bit later in the podcast, but that's why our own self-care, understanding what vicarious traumatization is, is so imperative so that we have healthy people working in the field, taking care of themselves so they can provide effective, healthy care to the people who really need it, the ones who are experiencing this victimization or this traumatization. Yeah, but I mean, the last thing that we need is more people being traumatized by the trauma that others have experienced, right? But it does happen to your point. So I want to ask you about vicarious trauma. And Mm -hmm. I mean, from what you say, I I think it's real, but how does it manifest uh, in in people who work with survivors of, you know, violence and how is it remedied? Sure. So trauma, vicarious traumatization is truly what you just said. It is the impact of being exposed to folks who are undergoing trauma, who have maybe experienced some kind of victimization. And it all vicarious traumatization is the effect of being in environments where we're sitting with or viewing um, the impact of violence on individuals or communities individuals, mm-hmm. community systems. Um, and the, the really important thing about vicarious traumatization is it's not only the trauma impacts that one of us may experience as a worker, as a witness, as a helper, but also that it changes your worldview. You learn to view the world differently in light of seeing um, the impacts of victimization on individuals, community systems. And so it manifests in a variety of ways. There's, um, It's different for everyone, just like trauma, individual trauma reactions are different for everyone, but it can manifest in um, ways that look like um, cynicism, maybe hopelessness or helplessness, maybe thinking the world is an unsafe place for everyone. Um, you know, maybe having some, one of the things that um, Laura Vandernut Lipsky talks about in her book, Trauma Stewardship, one of the trauma um, uh, trauma exposure responses they've identified as diminished creativity or inability to address complex problems. Um, I also see it in avoidance or numbing. Um, and, and like I mentioned earlier, I think cynicism is one of those uh, things that we can develop gallows humor in this type of work, you know, law enforcement, medical providers who deal with trauma, therapists, other people in the helping profession, we can develop kind of gall- gallows humor as a way to cope with some of the really horrific things that um, we see humans perpetrate upon one another, but we have to be really careful not to let that fall into cynicism because that's actually a sign of our own vicarious traumatization. Thinking that the world is bad, developing broad stroke uh, ideas about who and what um, is good or bad, thinking in those black and whites consistently and not being able to embrace nuance. Those are all signs of vicarious traumatization. We also see them in the physical realm too, like physical ailments. Um, We also see people who every time they take vacation, that's the only time that they get sick. 
It's because it's mm. the only time that their body has been able to let itself relax from all of the trauma that it's been, um, it's been absorbing. Yeah. Wow. So how do you remedy that? Sure. I think there's um, a variety of ways, of course, just like anything, just like individuals healing from trauma, um, are people who are helper, helpers have to develop their own ways for to heal from trauma. And the American Counseling Association has a, a little a little thing that they put out that calls it's called ABC. So it's um, it's um, awareness, balance, and connection. And so when I think of dealing with my own vicarious trauma, the first thing I need to do is assess to address. I can't address anything if I don't if I'm not aware that it's there. Mm -hmm. So really taking a good hard look at how am I functioning in all the domains of my life? How am I functioning physically? Am I sick all the time? How am I functioning socially? Do I have any friends that are maybe outside of this movement? Have I, you know, dated anyone? Am I going to places where I feel comfortable being around new people? How am I doing intellectually? Am I learning new things? Am I growing? Am I functioning um, well financially? Or am I spending all my money on ice cream because I'm self-soothing myself? Or mm -hmm. if I'm like, doing some um, retail therapy? So looking at all the different domains of our life and seeing where we're maybe a little bit off balance. And that leads us to the balance one. I think about balance in a variety of ways. I think about balance being um, having balance in you know, not too much of this, not too much of that, just in that way, but having a balance between my work life and the meaning that that creates for me and having a life outside of work. People who have greatest vicarious resilience are people who have meaningful experiences outside of their work and their work isn't their only identity. Um, what am I doing on the daily to take care of myself? Self-care isn't just an event, it is a process. It's something mm -hmm. that we do all of the time. Um, am I finding meaning in other things, in other relationships? Am I making healthy lifestyle choices? That's a really important um, marker to identify whether or not you are recovering and remedying from being exposed to this. Am I you know, connecting to people in a way that's meaningful? Those are great points. And I love that ABC. It's so easy to remember. Uh, mm -hmm. Even even I can remember it. And I have really <laughs> short memory span. Um, yeah. Assess, balance, and connect. So mm -hmm. I think all of us could benefit from doing that, even if we're not experiencing vicarious trauma, yeah. you know, because it's easy to get overwhelmed. And uh, I know that sometimes I'll look up and say, have I done anything for myself today or this week? Mm -hmm. And if the answer is no, then I think the answer is clear, you know, get up and do something for yourself or, you know, remember that yeah. uh, self-care is not just um, treating yourself to uh, an ice cream cone or taking a bath. It's also a lot of the things that, that you mentioned, and it does need to happen every day, just like everything else that needs to happen every day. So I really appreciate those thoughts. I wonder though, if, um, if there are any positives to mm -hmm. experience vicar experiencing vicarious trauma, yeah, say like, you I know, like maybe developing a greater compassion, or even as you said, it changes your world for you, but it, it can change your worldview sometimes in positive ways, because Absolutely. you may, you may identify a way that to really connect with survivors, mm -hmm. um, and put yourself in, in their place or in her shoes, if you will. You hit the nail right on the head. 
Um, Maria, that was exactly what I was talking about when I mentioned vicarious resilience. We talk mm -hmm. about vicarious resilience or vicarious transformation as just that, as you so beautifully stated. It is um, one of the things that we can take out of this work that continues to make it meaningful for us, continues to help us to be healthy and well in this work, is connecting to survivors, is connecting to other helpers and seeing the good in the world as well, seeing the world through the lens of compassion, seeing other people helping that we're all in this movement, this anti-violence movement together, mm -hmm. that we're all working together, lifting one another up so that we can continue to do this work. So there are always helpers out there. And if we can see that, it does develop vicarious resilience in us. Yeah. And it's it's also, you know, it's one of the reasons why storytelling, storytelling and, and telling her telling her story, mm -hmm. and finding her voice is so important because it's not just meant to inform you that this terrible thing happened or that someone experienced trauma, nor is it meant to give you vicarious trauma. It's meant to connect you to a situation that's larger than her and larger than yourself and something that perhaps you feel compelled to take action against like domestic violence or sexual assault um, and be a part of the solution, you know, a Absolutely. part of the future of, as you said, the anti-violence movement. Absolutely. We see post-traumatic post-traumatic growth in our clients. That's one of the markers of their own healing, that they are able to move forward and they have some kind of post-traumatic growth. We also can see that in ourselves. What is our vicarious resilience? How can we continue to, to make a difference and to be moved by this and see the importance of it and use our voices, use our votes, use our mm -hmm. dollars to make a difference so that we can all work together to stem violence in communities. So um, thinking back then to what we were talking about, uh, being, in the, being a therapist uh, and a professional who is connecting with these survivors on a regular basis and talking about their trauma, who else is at risk for experiencing vicarious trauma? So I think about anyone in the helping profession. So I'm sitting day to day with people who have experienced um, uh, violence. And so I'm hearing their stories. And that obviously has an impact on me. But I think about other community members that are witnessing the impacts of um, victimization and violence. You know, medical professionals, certainly law enforcement professionals, certainly. And we know that, you know, we cer certainly know that as a community. But I also think about school teachers or people who are um, supporting children. I think about our military personnel, of course, um, who are exposed to trauma and violence all the time. Um, but I think many of us, if we if we have a loved one who is going through a traumatic experience or who's been victimized or has experienced violence, we can't help but be impacted by that. So many of us are. So I, I'm glad you're doing this session particularly because anybody can be exposed to the impacts of trauma. And so we all need support around it. And I think that, that ABC, the Assess, Balance, and Connection uh, tool is a good one uh, because even if you don't believe that you've been experiencing vicarious trauma now might be a good time after this podcast is over to to do those three things and determine if there's anything in there that you need to look at and how you can heal from that or grow from it um, mm -hmm. or find someone to talk to about it 
Absolutely. And those of you who are, those of our listeners who are people who are licensed, it's an important part of your, your duty as a licensed professional to ensure that you are healthy and well. I also really like to um, remind us that self-care is, can't just be on staff. For those of you who are leaders in organization, staff care is also part of your responsibility if you want to call yourself a trauma-informed organization. So for those organizations that are really trying to adhere to these principles of trauma-informed care, it's incumbent upon those organizations to provide things like trauma-informed supervision, to provide things like regular time for people to, and encouragement of, of people using the time to mitigate the impact of being exposed to trauma day to day. So really just reminding organizations that that's also part of being trauma-informed is to ensure that we're caring for one another as well. Those are great points and something I wanted to ask you about because you also work with organizations who experience organizational trauma, which is a little bit different. What does that mean and how does it happen? Yeah, organizational trauma can come from a single incident like we were talking about before. It might be something that has happened at one of our, um, one uh, an agency or an organization where we've had a loss of a staff member or a loss of a client, for example. And working with organizations like Genesis, that's, that's a risk that we have at times sure. because of the work that we do. And so it might be a single incident like that, but it also can be, organizational trauma can also stem out of... Um, organizations struggling in this work. So sometimes organizations, especially organizations that are founded to right a social wrong, to address a a societal ill, um, sometimes those organizations, because of a variety of stressors that those types of organizations oftentimes, nonprofit type organizations oftentimes experience, we can also start to develop some of the behaviors associated with the social ill that we're trying to get rid of. Hmm. And so it's also important to realize that people who work with trauma may experience vicarious traumatization and vicariously traumatized individuals have reactions. And so that's just a risk inherent in a lot of organizations that we can develop traumatized systems. We can develop traumatized patterns. We can develop policies that aren't trauma informed. Um, We can see it in a lot of different ways. So organizations who address social ills need to be really, really mindful of assessing their organizations consistently to see if the organization has become traumatized or has traumatized parts. And then when you pile on to all of that, something like a global pandemic oh gosh, or the fallout from centuries of systemic racism on top of it, we see these layers of trauma within an organization that are each impacting every single individual somewhat differently and then the organization as a whole. Absolutely. So, Help us understand that. <laughs> oh gosh, we're going to be here for a while, Maria. Okay, <laughs> but I think you—I think you summarized that beautifully. That we have individuals who are working, who are suffering from trauma. We have individuals who are helping them, also taking on trauma. We have, um, like you said, community issues working in. 
um, movements that may not be acknowledged or may um, have a lot of victim blaming associated with them. And then we have the social, political, and cultural issues. You know, if you look at the, eco the ecological systems associated with it, we can just go layer, layer, layer further and further out. So we're dealing with political climates and then we're dealing with like things like a global health pandemic and how mm -hmm. all of those things just serve to layer one atop the other. And so we have to be really um, mindful of any interventions that we use, that we're addressing all of those different layers of traumatization or impact or response. So we want to make sure our interventions um, address those. So how do what are some in, individual level interventions we can have in our organization? How can we support the people doing this work face to face? How do we do this in our organization? What do our policies look like? What kind of supervision are folks getting? And then going outward, what are we doing in the community to address traumatization? How are we doing? What are we doing in the political spectrum? If that makes sense, we're just going further and further out so that we can make sure that we're addressing each layer of this very complex issue. And those layers are, we're still addressing them. Um, mm -hmm. It's 2022. Yeah. It's been a really challenging, oh, let's see, uh, six years. I don't know. <laughs> um, you know, it's just been very difficult in this country uh, to move forward with some of the things that we've all experienced. It experienced. And at the same time, for the organization, the show must go on. Yeah. The mission continues. The need is still there. And so if we, it's just like when you address your own personal trauma, I would think if eventually it will come back to you if, if you don't confront it. Mm -hmm. And I think organizations are finally realizing that we're, we're in that same place yep. as a collective unit of people working together. If we don't address all of these things that are going on inside and out, we're, we're not going to move forward as yeah, an organization. We're, we're just dress, addressing little pieces of the problem. It's kind of like, you know, putting, putting your finger in the crack of the dam, right? Mm -hmm. We're not being able to address the whole, the whole spectrum, but there, but there is, we do have some data to suggest some ways that organizations can move forward. And it's some of it's very similar um, associated with the way that we support survivors too. You know, the first okay, thing so that we Give need us, give us, yeah, a couple of examples yeah. on, on how organizations yeah. could do that. Yeah. So organizations who are um, struggling with whether it's single incident or um, cumulative trauma, organizational trauma that's systemic is the first thing that needs to happen, just like with survivors, is to ensure safety, stability, and containment. What is the situation we're dealing with? How do we make people feel? How do we support people in feeling safe? How do we develop some level of stability in this moment, whether we're going through a transition or whether we've had a terrible incident occur? And how do we contain it so that we know what the boundaries of this thing are? Is this issue all throughout the organization? Is it all throughout our community? Or is it just in this one pod? These few people are impacted by it. And then really being open and honest about naming that this is trauma. This is a trauma that has occurred and not minimizing people's experience of it or their responses to it. So naming that this is trauma and normalizing people's experiences. Those two things will get us really started. And then how do we 
create whatever repair we need to? What needs to happen? Do we need to bring in a consultant? Do we need to bring in a therapist from another organization to provide listening spaces for people who've been impacted by this? Do we need to give people time to get the support that they need elsewhere? What do we need to do to create repair in that time period or provide opportunities for healing on an individual basis, as well as in teams and in um, the organization at large? And then how do we move forward and having a clear vision and having conversations about what we want to do to move forward. Like you were saying, Maria, if we don't address something, we're bound to stumble upon it, right? Mm. And we're bound to get tripped up by it. So how do we acknowledge what has occurred? How do we identify where we're going from here? And what is our plan to do that? Always keeping in mind that it needs to progress at the rate of the people experiencing the trauma. You know, if, I, if I'm the boss and I'm like, like you were saying, the show must go on, I have to balance that with the show must go on, but the show can't go on with people who are hurting. The show can't go on with people who are wounded. How do we balance those two things? Yeah, that does sound like a dance, right? Trying to yeah. get that right. And it's not going to be right for everyone. I mean, mm-hmm. things are, people are typically forever changed. As you said, your worldview can be forever changed when you uh, experience this vicarious trauma. But you gave us yet another uh, tool for the toolbox of approaching these situations because inevitably we're going to experience more. Um, I, I just can't imagine it could be as bad as it's been, but you know, who knows? So let's get ready, folks. Uh, let's make sure we have all the tools that we need. We're going to assess, balance, and connect and safety, stability, and containment, which I really love that because it aligns so well with the Genesis mission of safety, shelter, and support. But, you know, yes, safety is number one for all of us. Stability is critical. I mean, I, I don't know anyone who likes living with uncertainty less than I do. I mean, I really dislike that. I love and thrive in stability. Um, And then containment. Yes, because um, things do have a beginning and an end. So the incident can happen. The effect of it may linger, but it does end. And we do step into a new direction. Ultimately, sometimes it just, you know, we all move there at different uh, paces, as you as you indicated. Um, You touched on this, but I want to come back to it. How does an individual or an organization know they are really healed and able to move on from trauma or abusive experiences? Yeah, Um, like we've talked about a little bit earlier, thinking that idea around survivors when they're able to, um, as a clinician, we have a a measure that we kind of use and that's uh, pre-trauma functioning. And I'm making air quotes, Maria, in this Yeah, okay. No, Um, those translate really well in audio, so thank you. (laughs) Yes, these are air quotes that y'all can't see, but I'm doing. So yeah, Uh pre-trauma functioning. So people are able to function in those domains of their life. Organizations as well. We hope that organizations will be able to return to some level of, of functionality, but real healing comes when we are transformed, right? Mm -hmm. So if we just go back to the way things used to be before the trauma occurred, that's not necessarily healing. So healing comes from integrating this experience in a way that leads us to a different way of functioning and being, particularly for organizations, because so often organizational trauma is, um, 
it has such a negative effect on the people that are working in those environments. If we just go back to the way that we did it before, we're bound to repeat that cycle over and over again. And I want to give big credit to um, the the, I, the two women who really truly wrote the book on organizational trauma and healing for organizations like Genesis, like other nonprofits, and that's uh, Pat Vivian and Shanna Horman. And they were the ones that coined that first phrase that um, ensure safety, stability, and containment, and those other things that I laid out, because they worked in organizations that were created, like Rape Crisis Center and domestic violence agencies, mm. to, to rectify these social ills, knowing that sometimes those organizations, just because of the ills that they were fighting, they're already founded in trauma, right? right. We're already inviting trauma into, into our organizations. And yeah. so how do we work effectively with that to create the best outcomes for both survivors and the people who are helping survivors? And ultimately, if we support helpers, that has a trickle-down effect to survivors, right? If we don't support staff, that ultimately negatively impacts the people that we want to help. Yeah, absolutely. It will be completely obvious uh, if the organization doesn't care about its own members, it'll come through in the work and the right. results or lack of results uh, with the clients. Yeah, absolutely. Knowing that, then when people do go through, let's say, therapy for trauma, mm -hmm. does that, you know, and it heals them and it transforms them does it also set them up for success to manage or cope with future experiences where they may be triggered or, or experience some other form of trauma so that they can have that resilience uh, the next time that, that something may happen? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked about, particularly about the therapy piece, you know, for both workers and people who are, you know, helpers and people who are experiencing the trauma um, firsthand. I do believe, obviously, I'm a therapist, I believe that people can heal from <laughs> trauma with good support, you know, and not everybody needs traditional therapy. Um, I, I want to really acknowledge that there are lots of cultural healing practices that do not include the very westernized traditional healing model of, or the very westernized healing model of using psychotherapy that's not relevant or culturally resonant for a huge percentage of the population so whatever healing modality that someone chooses to embrace hopefully they will have some good support and some good guides whether it's community healing in a religious context or whether it's using some traditional folk healing methods um, that people will get support like we talked about that c that connection is so important mm -hmm. and so after we have continued this or as we're going along on our healing process because again healing is not an event either it is it is a process um, and as we're we're going on after maybe quote unquote, the traumatic event is over, we will have opportunities where life will um, offer us opportunities to maybe be reminded of the traumatic experiences that we, um, that we um, have, have overcome in the past and use the word trigger. And to the point at the top of the show that we were talking about, um, trigger also is a word that is very overused mm. and has also been diluted, I think, in a lot of ways. The personal, um, the personal opinion of Monica Urbanic. Um, I think <laughs> that's what we're been, here for. <laughs> yes, trigger has been overused. So um, I really think when someone is triggered, what that means is that there is something in the environment, they're experiencing something, they're being exposed to something that reminds them 
physically, emotionally, spiritually of the terrible life experience they had. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and many times people who are triggered feel like they're re-experiencing those um, symptoms, those uh, physical sensations, those mental, emotional sensations as well that brought them to the trauma. And so that can happen. You know, if one is in a car accident, for example, and they drive through that intersection, there might be, and, you know, maybe have, um, they might have some body responses to it, nervous system responses to it. And so good healing also helps us be educated on our own reactions to traumatic experiences or other things that remind us of traumatic experiences. Good healing is going to prepare us, like you said, Maria, to move forward with some tools. That's one of the things that I think Genesis does really well is that they have a clinical team that provides not only healing for the moment, but also provides psychoeducation and support for survivors moving forward. Because invariably life is gonna give us opportunities to be exposed to things that remind us of our trauma. And how do we move forward with resilience? How do we move forward using our tools? How do we move forward in a way that while it may be a speed bump, it doesn't completely derail us from our path. And good treatment, good support, good healing includes future care. That's great advice uh, to, for anyone listening who's considering therapy or, you know, even if they're not and at some point in the future, they need to, or they have a friend or loved one who, who needs to, um, knowing what to look for in a program or a therapist is really important. And, uh, inclusion of that transformation and future care, I think would be, uh, to your points, critical to lifelong healing, because this is a journey that we're mm -hmm. on. And, and, you know, as you said, and we talked about a few minutes ago, there are always going to be things that are going to happen. Right. Um, so the experiences of today prepare me for what might be down the road and I need to learn from that and I need to move on from that because it's always going to be there. But a lot of life is joyful too. Mm -hmm. And yeah. we can learn from that just as well. Um, how to appreciate those joyful moments uh, and really be present in them. So uh, speaking of joy, our wonderful counselors at Genesis Women's Shelter and Support have a few questions for you. Um, and they wanted to know directly from you what your perspective of what trauma-informed supervision or leadership looks like for counselors and advocates who are on the front lines and experiencing so much of that vicarious trauma. Just give us a quick. Sure, sure. Okay. Um, these I know that these came from some amazing um, clinicians. And um, my vision of trauma-informed care or trauma-informed supervision is having supervision that is through that lens of vicarious trauma, just what we're talking about today. It's not just about, did you get your paperwork done on time? Um, have you, you know, have you put in your vacation request on time? It's not just the nuts and bolts around, did you fill out this assessment for that client? It's mm -hmm. truly about how are you as a clinician being impacted by the work that we're doing here? And how am I as your supervisor able to care for you so that you can continue to do this work effectively? And how are you being impacted by this trauma in a way that might be impacting your clients. So it's really looking at it from a holistic approach. It's, it's about the person who's providing the care, 
It's about their impact on the survivors. It's also about the survivor's impact on the person providing the care. And ultimately it's about the supervisor's responsibility to support that clinician in their work. And again, having the trickle down effect for survivors as well. Did that make sense, Maria? I think that's really great advice. And I think it resonates with me because I'm very close to the program at Genesis and I know the supervisors and I know that they practice this type of um, just supervision or holistic approach, not only to clients, but to staff. So this is, you know, it's 360 all the way around the agency, uh, caring for each other, caring for oneself and caring for the people who, who come into the organization. Um, We were also uh, wanting to know some practical some practical first steps that an agency Ooh. can implement oh, yeah, to, help absolutely. To, to help prevent some of the vicarious trauma, compassion, fatigue, and burnout experienced by counselors and advocates. But I would add to that as well, um, I do think client-facing positions at organizations like Genesis experience the brunt of what could be vicarious trauma. But I do think that there is vicarious trauma for everyone in an organization uh, like Genesis or who's mm-hmm. providing care to people who've been in these, you know, very difficult uh, experiences. We all experience some of that vicarious trauma in, in different ways, as we talked about throughout this show. So yeah. just a, a, a couple of first steps. Yeah, absolutely. And you really, again, brought that back beautifully to the idea, the spirit of trauma-informed care is that everything that we're willing to, if we're a trauma-informed organization, all of the ways that we're serving our clients in a trauma-informed fashion, safety, autonomy, the ability to make decisions, um, all of those things, we have to apply those to every level of staff. Because you're right, Maria, the forward facing, um, the client facing positions do have um, some maybe more immediate impact of that traumatization. But the grant writer who is having to write stories about Mm -hmm. that, the person who's organizing a conference and monitoring a session and hearing about the way law enforcement is supporting domestic violence survivors or about a case study that they're doing. All of us are being exposed to that. So the first steps are really to assess to address, right? So how do we assess our organization in all forms and fashions to assure that we are looking at it through that trend? Does staff feel like they have the ability to um, speak honestly? Do they have the ability to make decisions for their schedule and what that looks like? You know, does leadership get the same trauma training that frontline workers do? You know, are we infusing this trauma-informed care throughout every part of the organization? I would even say for organizations like Genesis that have wonderful auxiliaries and who have wonderful um, affiliate groups um, outside of just the service provision, are they all getting informed? Are they all getting trauma-informed care so they can provide good support to the staff as well as be ambassadors out in the community to other people who might not know that this is a place that they can come for source for support? So I would first assess to address. Yeah, I, I mean that's perfect advice. And I, I was thinking about that myself about our auxiliaries and our volunteers. And, you know, we have teenage volunteers, too, uh, that come in, high school students and college students. And 
they experience, you know, they can be experiencing trauma themselves. There are, that's a whole other show Mm -hmm. uh, talking about, about that type of trauma. But um, so we do need to kind of put our arms around everything and everyone uh, and, and be that trauma informed 360 uh, for, for the community and the organization. You're, you're so right. Um, I'd love for people to be able to learn more about your work. I've been on your website and I think it's really helpful and informative. So where can people get in touch with you and, and get to your website? Absolutely. So um, uh, my website is Urbanic, U-R-B-A-N-I-A-K, my last name, wellness, urbanicwellness.com. And I am in Dallas. I have a practice that's located on 635 Hillcrest-ish area. Um, And you can call my office. You can reach out to me on my website. And I think you're going to have that uh, listed, right, Maria? Uh, Yeah, the website um, will be, well, it's here in this audio. But uh, yeah, it'll probably be in our social posts or, or whatever. Cool. Yeah. So urbanicwellness.com, you said? Mm-hmm. That's correct. Yep. 214-347-9765. Um, and, you know, also just reminding to your point, Maria, that I serve clients who have been impacted by trauma and violence, but I also support people who work in this field. And I also do training and consultation and support for um, organizations or communities that are struggling with organizational trauma or just need some information on trauma in general. So I'd love to support anyone in this community because we're all in this together. So if I can be of service in any way, please reach out. Absolutely. It's been so great talking to you. There are additional resources on this topic at the Office for Victims of Crime, a program of the Department of Justice, and the Vicarious Trauma Toolkit. Go to their website, ovc.ojp.gov, and you will find the information there. And you can always turn to genesisshelter.org for resources, education, and support. Monica, it's been a pleasure. I learned so much. I'm going to assess, balance, and connect later, and I'm going to have safety, stability, and containment in all of my my dealings with trauma. I love it, Maria. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for highlighting this really important topic. You know, it's really important for us to all keep each other well so that we can continue to serve our community and the people who really need it the most. So thank you for your time and for putting your energy into this and asking such thoughtful questions and continuing to support this organization. It's been my pleasure and thank you for for the work that you do, which is critical. It's really critical to survivors and to to all of us in the community. Attention Spanish-speaking listeners. Listen to the end of this podcast for information on how to reach a Spanish-speaking representative of Genesis. Atención hispanohablantes. Escucha este podcast hasta el final para recibir información de cómo comunicarse con el personal de Genesis en español. If you or someone you know is in an abusive relationship, you can get help or give help at genesisshelter.org or by calling or texting our 24-7 crisis hotline team at 214-946-HELP, 214-946-4357. Bilingual services at Genesis include text, phone call, clinical counseling, legal services, advocacy, and more. Call or text us for more information. Donations to support women and children escaping domestic violence are always needed. 
Learn more at genesisshelter.org slash donate. Thanks for joining us and reminding you always that ending domestic violence begins when we believe her. Genesis, el podcast, anuncia servicios bilingües disponibles en Genesis Women's Shelter y Support. Si usted o una conocida está en una relación abusiva, puede recibir ayuda o dar ayuda a genesisshelter.org o por llamar o mandar mensaje de texto a nuestra línea de crisis de 24 horas al 214-946-4357. Servicios bilingües de Génesis incluyen mensajes de texto, llamadas, consejería, servicios legales, asesoría y más. Llámenos o mándenos un texto para más información. Siempre se necesitan donaciones para apoyar a los, las mujeres o a los niños escapando de la violencia doméstica. Aprende más a nuestra página de internet en genesisshelter.org barra inclinada donate. Gracias por unirse con nosotros. Recuerden que el terminar la violencia doméstica empiece cuando creemos a la víctima.